You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Squid and Ultimate Leafs fan show, brought to you by the Hockey News. With over 2 million dedicated readers, the Hockey News established in 1947 is the authoritative source of hockey and the number one hockey publication in North America. With an ever-growing podcast network and video debt base on top of an already established print and digital brand, the Hockey News is there to cover all major hockey stories from around the world. Visit THN.com slash deal value on the subscription to the Hockey News. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate East fan, and by my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. How are we keeping today, Squid? Oh, uh, we're pretty good. It's uh, unfortunately the cold weather's coming, and then of course it's Saturday night. I don't know why we ever do that anyway, but it's an hour of golf time here uh, every every single day. And uh, hopefully we can play. I, I know our golf course closes on the fifteenth of November, I believe. But I think if they, you know, good weather beyond that, I, I think they'll keep it open because they lost so much in the beginning, but. Uh, but other than that, I'm doing fantastic. Well, I think, you know, I mean, aside from all of that, people's activities are, are short with the World Series now in the books, uh, what happened the other night. Oh. Uh, by the way, I hope all the analytical... I've watched that. Can you believe that? I hope all the hockey analytical junkies are paying attention to that. With Kevin Cash, if he's still there, I'd be quite surprised. I mean, how do you take a guy out throwing a one-hitter, winning a game in the sixth inning, because the analytics tell you to take him out. And the guy is ready to, and he's thrown like peas all night. Yeah, I, I didn't understand that. I was watching it and I, I was like, I want to go through the TV and grab him because I want to say, get back in the dugout. Don't take this guy out. He's dominating and he was. And then, you know, as soon, and the announcers talked about it. As soon as he's out of the game, the Dodger hitters have a whole new life. And, you know, you look, you see what happens. They ended up coming back and winning. Well, that's, again, for all the analytics, that goes to show you can never actually, they, they're never yeah. a pure form of results. And everybody always remember that. They're good to take use at times, but under right circumstances. Yeah. That is definitely not the right circumstance for, for, for that to happen. Anyway, we um, still have NFL and college football, which will be running its course on a weekly basis, sports fans. But... It's going to get even tighter with um, more COVID shuts down possibly coming. So we should speak about our guest today who may be able to give us a little insight into his own. Uh, the always entertaining executive director of the NHL Association, Glenn Healy, is going to... It's good. I just thought of this. I, I guess we could actually say that Heels your lord and master. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, in a sense, he is. I mean... Uh... Uh, you know, he does uh, run the NHL alumni, which, uh, you know, since he's come in, he's done an unbelievable job uh, setting up uh, for the for the ex-players. And, uh, uh, you know, because everything's not perfect when you retire. Guys need help. Guys need, you know, they have they have different things that uh, uh, after assistance programs and learning programs. So if you want to go and learn a skill or learn uh, to be a, uh, anything, he, he's worked on all that and he's set it all. Yeah, I know, and he's all about promoting the game. And I can tell you with him, I've known him for a number of years, but back in the 80s, uh, when Rick Talk and I had a hockey school in Scarborough, he became his instructors one day. 
and most of the guys would come a few hours and head off, and that'd be it. So I remember I was on the ice fields, had been there on the first day, and I turned behind me, and there's a guy tapping his shoulder, and it's him coming back again to help out. And he showed up for like three days in a row just to help, and just just to help, wow. and, you know, talk to the kids. You know, it was pretty good. But that's Tim. Uh, that's Glenn. He's a he's a very very good person. Uh, very very uh, into you know what what it is to be a player and what it is to give dignity to other people. Uh, and and yeah, the way he runs the alumni, it, it, because that's what the alumni is all about. Well, we're sure looking for him. He's actually a very entertaining guy on top of all that. So, I mean, speaking of which, to be professional, you got to imagine that uh, just try and put yourself in the shoes coming from your experience about what these guys are going through today, not knowing when your start update is. And you've got to try and train every day, be focused, eat properly, all those types of things. I know people say that, uh, you know, big deal, professional athlete getting paid, but these guys, there's always kind of a finish line. You know, you've got to get to a certain date to start performing your workout stuff, but not knowing when you're going to actually start playing, it's got to be really difficult. Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, I, I when you, when you look at the whole situation, and I mean, it's an 11 month a year job now. And, you know, they have to be ready for, for usually for training camps. But I mean, most guys will take two or three weeks off and then they'll get right back into it. Uh, mm -hmm. They'll start slow and then they'll, they'll ramp it up, you know, uh, so that they're ready uh, and they're in top shape when camp rolls around. So right now I, I would imagine they're looking at the date that, that's been talked about, January 1st. Yeah. And they're probably gearing their workouts towards that so that, you know, they're, they're in peak condition uh, starting January 1st. Yeah, so, it's, yeah. Well, maybe even before that, because if they play some exhibition games and they go through training camp, don't forget, when I played, we'd have three weeks of training camp before we even played a, an exhibition game. And, you know, now it's three days. <laughs> so you, you better be in top shape when you get there because three days later you could be playing an exhibition game. And those exhibition games are, are very, very tough because everybody's trying to impress and trying to make the team. Well, I know when we talked to Austin Matthews a few months ago and we brought this subject up with him before the bubble games and the playoffs started. He had made a comment, we actually questioned him on it, that it was very tough to get up, especially when you were quarantined, to motivate yourself to work. And it was, it was difficult because it was something nobody was really used to. Just the good thing is they're all in the same sort of level playing field position. But we will wait and see. But I would say that uh, it would be an interesting next uh, when Once they get some clarity, obviously, it'll make things a little bit easier. Well... Yeah, and that's, you know, that's going to come with, you know, all the rules, uh, you know, the borders, uh, different state provinces, and, and everybody has different rules. I mean, because of the, how many cases they have and so on. And uh, so it's going to be quite to see what happens because January 1st, if they start, is you're not going to have fans in the building. And if you do, it might be 20%. Yeah you know, in the building. So, you know, the, can the NHL survive three, four or five months without fans? 
And, you know, that's going to be interesting whether or not they can. And if they can't, then you might see this being pushed back even further. But uh, again, it, it has to be pretty tough for the players, as you said, because they really don't know the exact date when training camp starts or when the regular season and Let's face starts. it, at this point, nobody really knows. So anyway, I think, uh, you know, it's going to be obviously a subject debated over the next little while and talking about all the different possibilities with the Canadian division and a couple other divisions and all that. So it sounds like it's going to keep our interest that for sure and well yeah and the big thing now is that they're they're uh trying out that rapid testing in calgary for incoming people and uh you wonder if, if that thing work if that works well then teams can come in and get the rapid test and they don't have to quarantine for 14 days so perhaps maybe that takes away from the canadian division but Personally, I'd love to see a Canadian division. Yeah. I think it'd be just fantastic if all they did was play against one another. Agreed. Agreed to totally. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we, uh, we hope we do see that. It looks like it's sort of leaning that way to create that sort of buzz and get the game uh, hopping again. So, anyway, we'll watch with some interest, and maybe we'll get a little further insight from our friend when he joins us in a minute or so. But I think it's time to listen to what Mr. Healy has to say. So, Squid, our guest today is considered one of the good guys in the game. Played 16 years as a pro, won a Stanley Cup, moved into broadcasting, and now serves as the executive director of the NHL Alumni Association, Glenn Healy. Heels, how are we doing today? Well, that was quite an introduction. Uh, pretty much 90% of it was bullshit, but that's okay. That's fine. Uh, but, yeah, we, uh, we're doing well. It's uh, it's. You know, I don't even know what day it is in COVID-19, but we're getting close to COVID-20, but we're getting through it. And uh, for us NHL players and everybody out there, the key is to make tomorrow better than today. And I th think we're down that road. Well, actually, while we're on that subject, I, you know, we know you're usually you're a very busy guy, uh, and we do want to thank you for joining us today. But you always have a plate full of things on the go. What are some of the orders of business that you work on currently? Well, I think, you know, if you're looking at what uh, we are all feeling through the, with regards to COVID, you know, we feel the sense of isolation, you know, that, that we're all kind of social animals and we, we're really missing that. And, uh, and we really have like a lack of structure. I mean, I, I can recall looking at my closet the other day and saying, well, those, when you get dressed up, you wear those. Okay. But if you want to break it down further, when the NHL train leaves after my 16th year, or, or when it finished his career, uh, and all of a sudden, what did we feel as NHL players? We felt isolation, phone stopped ringing. We weren't as uh, big a, a deal as we once were before. People stopped calling. We couldn't get into concerts and do all the things we thought that were going to be a birthright for us the rest of our lives. And we lacked structure. You know, we didn't have the you know, pregame meeting at 9, the on the ice at 10.30, the 4.30 meal, the 6 o'clock PK, 6.20 PK, PP. Structure was gone. I guess, so for all of us that are listening, if you're not an NHL player, welcome to the world of an NHL player when that train left the station. And so we're all in the same boat. We try to get through it. Mental wellness is a, a big issue for us. And, but our goal really doesn't change with the alumni, and uh, Ricky's a big part of it. You know, we honor the past, the guys that uh, paved the roads for the current players, the Marners and the Matthews to drive on them. Uh, we honor the past for those guys, and we try to make tomorrow better than today. And that will not change when we come out of COVID. 
pre-COVID, the pillars are all the same. Well, one of the things I think people don't understand also is that everything you described there in the life of an NHL player, that is all given to you on a sheet of paper or text to them or email to them. You're not even thinking for yourself. You're told every day where to be, what time to be, what time to be in the bus, what you're having for dinner. And then all of a sudden that all just, and then you're on your own. Guys, they, they don't even know where to find washed. You know, never mind where they're going to eat. So these are the things that people look at and frown upon. So this is why I think maybe some of the other things you could touch on here too on this also is that some of the other things that the alumni does to try to help players get through all these tough periods. An example, I mean, one of the things we were going to get into and we were talking before we got you on your heels was uh, the Joe Murphy book that's out right now. I'm basically three quarters through it. And I recommend people do have a read of that because it it, it does tell the tale pretty well. But guys like Murphy and Derek, Derek Sanderson, those aren't isolated cases, even though they look like that and it might be almost looked at as anomalies. There are a lot of guys that do have problems. Well, yeah, and he was like, you talked about lack of structure after, you know, you finished playing, which is absolutely true. Uh, but like, I know I talked to you quite a bit about it and, and what you're doing. And because I think everybody has kind of the, the blind eye and thinking that all of us are millionaires and have lots of money and life's just great and we just go on every day and everything's perfect. Well, that's not the case. You know, you, you have to deal with that from the NHL alumni uh, perspective. So give us a little bit goes on and what you do and, and the NHL alumni in those situations. Well, I, I'd say this. Uh, two things that I know for certain. There's a couple other things, but two I know players. I know this. Uh, we will all retire. It would be great if Sidney Crosby would retire tomorrow because then he could be an alumni. Wouldn't that be <laughs> No, Sid, keep playing. I'm just kidding. All right. We all retire. Care if you're Wayne Gretzky or if you're Glenn, uh, you retire. The second thing we all, all trans. If you're looking at the average age of an NHL player today, it's 23 and a half. At 24, he's closer to becoming a Rick Viber, Glenn Healy, a retired player. And so they come out of the game a lot earlier, a lot younger. I played till I was 40, that as well. And uh, and so no, I, was done at, I was done at 32. <laughs> You, said, you just didn't tell us. You were done at 26. You didn't tell us. Uh, but, you know, the reality is we all, we all transition, and we don't all transition well. We might be good hockey players. We're not necessarily good fathers. We're not good husbands. We're not good business people. And so what our, our hockey family is for people that have fallen through the cracks. I would never talk about an pl individual player. I know Joe Murphy, is, there's been a book written, say this to every NHL player who's listening who, wonders why are they not helping this player more. I can tell you that every single NHL player who has played one shift in the league who needs help, we will help every single player. Phone is on 24-7, seven days a week. A player needs help, we get them help. The one thing I demand of our, our staff is that whatever happens in the dressing room, and Rick and I are very familiar with this, stays in the dressing room. You don't let anything out of the vault. And so, yeah, you know, Joe has needed some help from us in the past, and we have provided it. We'll never stop. And, uh, and we have a, a, a whole group of players that need help as well. And we will help every single player and family the best that we can because, again, we're going to honor the past. These folks, 
and some of the biggest guys in the game may need help, and some of the smallest may need help. This isn't uh, based on salary. It's not based on what you want. Uh, and it is real life. And there are people in real life that, uh, that have issues as well. With our NHL family, we worked at a company. You know, you can pick it. I won't pick it. You get finished with that company. They don't really care that you work there for 35 years. They're not about to put you in a rehab if you need it. They're not about to deal with coping mechanisms. They're not about to get you mental wellness issue help. They're just not. You're done. You've finished 35 years. We never let anything without a paddle. We, we desperate everybody who wants help that we possibly can. And that's a great thing for, for Rick and I to have and an honor and it's a privilege that we deserve. We should have it. You know, since, well, I mean, like I said, Glenn and I have talked a lot and we've been at a few different together for the all night. And, you know, one of the things, like I said, because of his playing days and then his time on, on television, obviously had a pretty big role with the PA for a while as well, the Players Association. Uh, you know, he knows what it's all about. And when he came in, that was one of his biggest mandates was, you know, honor the past and we help everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, how much money you made, where you were drafted, where you played. Plain and simple. We're all family, and we're all gonna, we're going to help everybody. And uh, yeah. you know that's that. To me, that that you know is, is refreshing, and uh, I, I love it. Yeah, you know the other thing too is the the relationship with the player association and with the league is extraordinary. It's strong. We all have the same mandate. We all have the same mission. You know, I know the player association is is working for the current players, but those current players they're well aware. They're they're going to be retired players. So we're building that foundation to make sure when they get out that they have the help that they need to to go and 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 be. You know, we finish every one of our meetings with this slide, and it's Usain Bolt crossing the the line in the hundred yard dash, and there's not a runner anywhere close to him, and the message is finish strong, and if any life in your career finish strong and that's what we want for all of our nhl players and and uh you know what every day we're making tomorrow better than today so it doesn't change for us through covid the pillars are the same and uh and we're winning so we're getting to as many guys as we possibly can so it's good privilege to play in the league an honor to play get your name on a cup my gosh that would just be the ultimate <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> you had to rub that in eh? <laughs> But uh, I didn't play for Toronto in the 80s, uh, but uh, <laughs> I was in the, in the 90s. But uh, at the, the end of the day, you, what, what you want is uh, your assets in this game. It's not your Stanley Cup rings or your Stanley Cups. It's your family. And you want what's best for your family as you move on to the next phase of your life. So, um, yeah, it's been tough through COVID. Uh, a lot of mental unwellness, a lot of issues with players. But I can tell you that uh, – you know, we're, we're in a good, a good space with, with, with all the guys. Well, I can tell you this, that, it, that the work you're doing is not going unnoticed. Uh, and I know that any of the charity work that uh, Deb and I have done on our house and we reach out to NHL players or any of the alumni, we're the first to step up and help. And I know that any of the players we talk to about the work that's being done behind the scenes by guys like yourself uh, is just really improving and getting better every day for players and, it's, and keep up the great work. So let's have some... Um, 
fun and go back to your career and talk about how things went. Now you start. Uh, <laughs> uh, here's Squid. Uh, you know what though? He's got that cup. It's hot in here. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, he's got the cup. But he's I also got a ring. So we got it very gently here. Now here's the guy from Pickering, Ontario. <laughs> and for those listening that may not know where Pickering is, about 45 minutes east of Toronto, uh, small community, a lot of hockey crazy people out there. Okay, so first off, take us through playing hockey out there and starting, how did you get stuck in goal? Were you the yeah. smallest guy in the street or something or the youngest guy? No, uh, well, Pickering is, is the home of an eight-reactor nuclear power plant, right? <laughs> so leave Toronto and it's east you smell it and south you step in it. Uh, and then you found it. Here we go. Uh, when I started, uh, it was my, my dad came from Scotland after World War II. And all of the, the, the people in our church league, their kids were playing hockey. And so my dad immediately thought, well, then we've got to play as well. And so my first year, they used to have, and this really dates me, this wouldn't date Rick, but they had the buzzer system. So you were on for two minutes, and then the buzzer would go off, and you would go off. And then that buzzer would go off, and you go back on. So I played that entire first year, get on the ice. Buzzer would go off. I would go to change. Eh. By the time I got to the bench, because I couldn't skate, eh. I'm back on. I've never left the ice. So I'm the only guy in the Holy Redeemer Hockey Association that played every minute of every game all year long, because I never got to the bench. But I spent the first year never touching the puck, and my dad was a genius scout. He said, well, if you can't go get the puck, why don't you let the puck come to him and make him a goalie? And that was where the <laughs> the legacy began with the Holy Redeemer Flyers back in the day. But uh, our family hockey was about life skills, teaching, sacrifice, discipline, good teamwork, and all the things that you learn from being part of a really good team and being in a situation where you can be a better person, a better ambassador. And, uh, and that's what hockey was to me. No pressure to win, no pressure to lose. Just go have fun and just make sure you're a good teammate. And so that start wasn't a very good one. And in fact, that at the end of that year with my Gordie House skates that I got for Christmas, the coach actually asked my dad if he actually ever got them sharpened. And at that point, he, in his Scottish brogue said, I didn't even know you're supposed to get them sharpened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you can't skate? You don't have your skates sharpened. Play the whole year on dull But great memories, great and memories. Now, here's the other thing, too, Hills. I understand that uh, your goal pads weren't exactly custom fit when you started playing. No, no. Uh, the first set of pads that I had, uh, I got from the Legion. So I don't know if anyone's a Legion member, but clearly, you know, between uh, the beer they sell and the cigarettes and goal pads, those are their top three selling items. I don't know how I got them, but I, I, they were built for a guy who was about 6'3". I think they were Ken Dryden's old pads. And uh, I wore these, and my first couple of years, they were basically up to my chin. And then as I got older, uh, as I grew, uh, they then became below my knees. And uh, as a 16-year-old went to my dad asking and begging, you know, this is a Scottish family, so money is tight, right? And we, uh, we, we asked, can I get some new pads? I'm getting hit on the knees and it's, it's hurting, right? And his message to me was just catch the pucks. Don't complain about your pads. Use your glove hand. That's what it's there for. So those are the pads I wore all the way through. And, uh, you know, even when I played in the NHL, if, you, if you've noticed, the pads were always way shorter and way smaller. 
and I was just being deprived as a young kid, and I'm over it now. I've had therapy, and I'm good. So you well, up, he, he didn't catch very many either. Well, this is coming from a guy who shot five. probably still hurt. a guy who shot five hole every time he came down the wing. Um, I remember playing against Ricky when I was a college kid. We used to have this skate in Toronto, the Jack Ridgeway Super Agent skate. Uh, rest in peace, Jack. He put together this skate, and I would go out, and you would have it was better than an NHL training camp. You'd have Borey out there, you would be Ricky, you'd have Sittler, you'd have all the big guys. And I'm telling you, I was the first star every time I was out there. It was amazing. Uh, I've, there's never been a better goalie at dodgeball in your life than me. <laughs> I couldn't stop a thing and thought, there is no chance I'm playing in the NHL. Not with guys like Rick Vine and Daryl Sittler and these guys were the real deal and uh, taught me a real lesson. You got a long way to go, boy, a long way to go. So now you ended up playing for your hometown too in junior. So that must have been kind of uh, a thrill for you to play for the Panthers. Yeah, you know, as a, uh, for me, we had a really good team. Uh, most of the guys went on to the scholarship route. And, uh, and that's great because, you know, wherever your dream can continue. And for us, my parents, the message was clear you know, please be the only Healy family member that's ever been educated. So if you can do that and get a, actually have a high school degree, wow, we have one, but a college degree, uh, but it was great playing at home. You know, I, I look at some of the guys that I played with at the NHL level and they would tell those junior stories of the Western league and the 16 hour bus trips. And, and I just shook my head thinking like I would have quit after the first weekend. I don't know how you did it. Uh, but we played in a little tiny arena in uh, in Pickering, Don Beer. Beer and it's a tiny little arena, and uh, but the crowds would come out back when you didn't have all the social media and all the different things that are going on today to entertain the masses. They would come out, and we had a great team, and it set me up for what would have been you know a chance to go anywhere in the states with scholarships. I had a chance to go play with Mike Keenan in Peterborough. And when he was with the major junior team, you can guess what that answer was. Even at 15, I was so smart. It was amazing. I turned that down. But uh, it led to some great things. And a scholarship opportunity to get, you know, a double major uh, at a great school where I had a ton of fun yep. and uh, set the table for the NHL journey. Well, I had to go through that experience with my son. But, I mean, when I was coming out at playing or uh, getting looked at by junior teams, there was no college players going to the National Hockey League, which is obviously my ultimate goal was to, you know, I would have loved to have gone to college and got a degree in something. God knows what it would have been, but would have got something and then gone on to the NHL. But I think Red Berenson, I think, to my knowledge, was the only guy who had gone to college and has played in the NHL up to that point. So, but then my son, he played for the U.S. Development Program, but he was drafted by Sudbury. And, and he's a smart kid. And he said, you know, Dad, I, at 16, I'm not going to play a whole lot because I'm not a superstar. I'm a good player. I'm going to go to school. And he ended up with the U.S. Program, got a full ride at Miami, Ohio. They used to beat the hell out of Western Michigan all the time, too, by the way. <laughs> And he's, Hold he's, on, I'm going to call a friend. Uh, <laughs> uh, do we get a, a Trump fact check here, please? A fact check. Yeah. Uh, wrong. Wrong, Ricky. Sorry. But go ahead. Continue. Well, what's his name? Uh, uh, Blasio was one of his coaches in Miami, Ohio. 
he really enjoyed it, got his degree, and now he's still playing, but he's doing a lot of other things and, and that, you know, that those degrees let him do. And I, I think that's wonderful. I mean, if I, if I was to tell any kid today, I would say play junior A and then go to college. Don't go to major junior. Well, there's a real evolution of the game when you look back and, and you're bang on. You know, you had your, your, your odd guy that came out, like Ken Dryden, went to yeah. Cornell and came out. and Wow, you know, right away wins the Stanley Cup and the Calder and all, all the things that, that go along with people not knowing who you were. They really didn't even scout college players. They didn't scout European players. Our first Russian player in the league, I think, was 88-89 with Sergei Priakin. So they weren't going to Russia. They weren't going to a lot of different countries. I mean, look at Nick Lidstrom, arguably the second best defenseman ever. Was it six, seven Norrises? What did he win? You know, they actually hid him in the hotel because they didn't want anyone to see him for, for during the draft because they would have said, who's that guy? Looked him up and said, wow, we should probably take a look at this guy. Detroit got him. He was a jewel. And so the whole game changed. It became a worldwide game. I mean, the Leafs might have been the first guy to take an off-the-board uh, the kind of guy, Nick Antropoff, when everyone had to look him up and say, where's Kazakhstan? Where's he from? And so it did change, and college hockey emerged. They became real successful programs. You know, Red Berenson took over at the University of Michigan. You know, when I initially played against Michigan, they didn't even have a full complement of scholarships. I think they had 10 scholarships, so they didn't attract a good team. And then as a result, they went and got a coach like Red, full complement of scholarships, immediate powerhouse. And a lot of the benefit of college hockey, particularly in the cap world, is you don't have to sign that player two years out of junior. You can hold on to him and watch him play for four years. You get an extra two years of maturity, and he's not banging up against your cap, putting you in a situation where you've got to make decisions on other players. So the game evolved right in front of our eyes. And, uh, yes, you know, the college level didn't bring a lot of NHL players not the guys that I played with, but as time has gone on and the league has gotten bigger and it's worldwide and scouting matters more. If you play for the Pickering Panthers junior C team and you're any good, they're going to draft you. Well, you know, the thing about it is also people got to realize you're playing against older guys too, because you'd be playing against guys that could be 23, 24 years old. So it's a whole different evolution for the player too, making that transition. So for you, I know you understated all the time about, but you were, quite a good goalie at the college level playing in Western Michigan. So was there must have been a moment that he was, was there at that defining moment when you thought, I can actually take this to the next level, even though college players weren't taken a lot in the NHL level. Was there a moment when you thought, I'm going to give this a shot because I think I can actually do this? Well, I'm going to say no. <laughs> because, okay. you know, I, I, I can recall trying out for the world junior team and, and there was four goalies trying out. Mm-hmm. There was Frank Caprice, Mike Moffat, Grant Fior, and myself. And uh, Grant Fior made the Oilers that year. He was drafted really high. I can remember going down, Dave King, the coach, and Grant would be, you know, we'd be down for a stretch in the morning, and he'd have his gamma running shoes on and black dress socks. And I would think to myself, this guy better be pretty good because no one dresses like that. And he was beyond good. And then Mike Moffat and Frank Caprice made the team. I got cut. But that first day of, of training camp, um, I undid my bag for the first time and, and I had a couple other NHLers, James Patrick beside me and, and they were talking about how they skated all summer. And I looked at them like, where, where do you skate? Like, 
hockey's over in April, right? And I didn't even check my hockey bag to see if I had two skates in it. I might have went to World Junior Camp with one, had to play with a Kodiak boot. I don't know. But uh, And then even my last year of, of university, uh, really what gave me my break was one of the last games I played was against Bowling Green. And we won in double overtime. Shots were heavily handed. Bowling Green is the best team in the country. They won the NCAA, but we beat them. And Rogie Dashon and Pat Quinn were there to watch Dave Ellett and Gary Galley. And Rogie looked down at the ice and said, sign that little short guy. And that's how the journey began. And then from that moment, it was a matter of seizing opportunities. And yes, I managed to seize them. Uh, but by no means did, I, did ever a light bulb go off where I thought, I'm going to make this. This is something I can do. And that kind of came down to the last game I played when I was looking in my rear view mirror and objects were way closer than they appear. I was being chased down by a bunch of guys with talent. So, but it, it worked. It was a good journey. 16 years and retiring at 40. I'll take that any day. Well, you know, and where you are today, and just as a side note, uh, Mike Moffat, by the way, plays uh, beer league hockey against me Tuesday mornings in Stouffville, and he plays defense, by the way. And he's pretty good. Tell Mike this. They won 8 nothing against the Russians in the gold medal game, correct? Uh, I could have I played that game. I could have. I could have I got it to 8-7. I could have. <laughs> we would have hung on at the end. But I'm sure, I'm sure I could have hung on there with an 8-7 win. Let them know. So here's a double question for you, Hales. You're playing in L.A. You come from two pretty significant hockey hotbeds in Toronto and Michigan. You moved to L.A. and you're playing there. So talk about the experience playing there. And part two of that question, and all of a sudden, you know where I'm going to go with this, August 9th, 1988, the hockey world turns upside down when this guy number 99 shows up in town. So the difference is going between before and after. I didn't realize we traded for Wolf Paymont. Did we get Wolf? <laughs> you got him. Okay. You got him for Bernie Nichols. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, the first year in L.A., uh, we, we wore the yellow pants and the yellow sweaters. And, and we had uh, Culver City Ice Arena, which, which oh. Rick would remember really well. I mean, at one point, it got so bad, we didn't even have lines on the ice at Culver City. I would take the net and put it where I thought it would be. And if they scored on me stick side, I just moved the net. Right now, hey, there we go. I got that problem fixed. And so, but we were a team that were, were uh, full of witty goon talkers. Like we could beat anybody up. And I remember my first game in training camp, we finished the game in Duncan, BC against Vancouver with three players on each bench and college guys thinking, this is the NHL. Like, this is what I signed up for. Okay. And then we did get 99. And that year training camp was in Victoria, British Columbia. And uh, I sat beside Wayne through that training camp. And I spent the entire training camp not picking his brain, not seeing what Grant Beer was like, not understanding what it was like to win championships, but basically telling all of the media to please get off my equipment. You're standing on my gold pass. <laughs> You're standing on my skate. Would you please give me some room? And so it was a unique experience. We had more members of the press at our training camp than the Stanley Cup final the year before. And Wayne, one player, simply took us to one of the best teams in hockey and not only built that franchise up from what would have been just a mediocre team uh, to a, a dynasty, to Stanley Cup champs, to opening hockey all across the South, from Anaheim, from Tampa, mm -hmm. to Florida, to uh, San Jose, you name it. I mean, it just opened the doors for all of us to have a, an ability to go from 16 teams to 21 teams and now to 32 teams 
And uh, if, if Wayne had stayed in Edmonton, I don't think we would have seen that Southern growth. So one player uh, made for a lot of players getting jobs, a lot of families getting uh, fed at the table every night. And so I can't say enough good about him. And I remember the, one of the first days of, of, of the year, Robbie Fator called me in the office and said, he was the coach, said, you know what your job is this year? And I'm thinking, okay, backup, starter, what would it be? He said, make sure you stop Wayne Gretzky in practice because if you don't, you're out of here in a hurry. So if I ever tried in practice, Ricky, maybe not against you, but when it came to 99, uh, you're looking at George Vezina in the net. Come practice. <laughs> well, and, and uh, I guess the team, I, I went out and saw some games back in that period, and it was the place to be. The, cl the foreign club was the absolute oh. place to end up. And I remember standing there and all these movie stars all around me. So some of the celebs, like any movie sightings or any brushes with celebrity in your time there after when Gretzky showed up? No, I, I never really went out ever in L.A. I would just... You know, <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, no, we actually, I, I can recall, the, like, our Meet the Kings night was in Beverly Hills. You know, the year before, it was, I think it was at an amusement park where we sat in, like, a dunk tank, and they tried to shoot us into the water. That was the year before. Then the next year, Gretzky gets there, and it's in Beverly Hills. We had, we had literally John Candy... You had uh, Ronald Reagan, you had Paul Anka, you had Neil Diamond, you had Tom Hanks. It was the who's who. And I recall pulling up and uh, the paparazzi were there on both sides, like you would imagine for movie stars. And I had Paul Fenton, uh, Paul Gay, and Lyle Fair in my car, which was a black Ford Escort with no air conditioning. And we pulled up and you could see as we got out of the car, the paparazzi, you could hear the and they stopped. And I could hear them saying, who the hell are those guys? And I thought, we're players. Like, this is our team. And, uh, but, it, you know, like that night, uh, Paul Anka sang at it. And, you know, during one of our games, uh, Sylvester Stallone came in and gave us a speech like he was Rocky. It was just the place to be in, in uh, California, the place to go to watch games. Bruce McNall was the owner and loved him to death. And he just uh, created a culture down there where if you were to be anywhere in L.A., it was to be at an L.A. Kings game. And so, yeah, you got to meet a lot of celebrities and, and do a lot of things that a guy from Pickering never would have got to do. But the, the bottom line is with Wayne on board, we were just a really good team and could beat anybody. And my favorite memory against playing against the Leafs, Rick, you might be able to add on to this, it was an afternoon game on a, a Saturday or a Sunday, and uh, John Brophy was the coach, and he came underneath. The, you had to crawl underneath the uh, bench to get to the bench. Players went out the doors, and he came up too fast in his white California suit, banged his head, and he was bleeding all over the suit. And uh, we beat the Leafs that day. I think it was either 11-2 or 9-2. And uh, Brophy would not leave the bench. He stayed out there and bled all the way through the white suit. And I'm in my net looking over and going, what is wrong with that guy? What's wrong with well, this team? Uh, and I don't know if you recall that game, Ricky, but that was... I, wasn't, I was not there, to be honest with you. I had already been traded in Chicago. And, uh, but I do recall seeing it on television yeah. and you know, thinking the same thing. Mind you, I knew Brof. And when he wouldn't leave the bench, I thought, well, that's Brof. You know, I, I knew him pretty good, and I played for him in Birmingham and coached against him. 
he was, that was the type of guy Wolf was. I mean, when I coached against him when he was in Norfolk and I was in Charleston in the East Coast League, he wanted to fight me. You know, and, and here's a guy who coached me, but he wanted to fight me when we were, we were coaching against each other. And, but that was John Brophy. But uh, it, it, I, when I'm looking at that, I'm just thinking, like, oh, my God. Like, there's blood everywhere on his white coat, on his white hair. And <laughs> the trainer's trying to help him. He's just throwing him away. Get away from me. <laughs> like, and two, two, of the, two of the Leaf scouts came out to scout the game, to watch the game. And uh, they showed up at the game that night. We, we, had, we had scouts. You had scouts. They showed, up, they showed up to watch the game that night. And what they failed to realize, they flew all the way to California. And the game was an afternoon game. And when they showed up to get their tickets, it was a Laker game that they were watching. They actually missed the Leaf game. So, well, I'm not, I can't make this up. Uh, no, I can't make it up. That's a fact. That says a lot. It's not, surpri it's not surprising. That explains a lot. Well, here's the other thing, too. You, um, like Gretzky opened up hockey on the west coast of, uh, of hockey in uh, the United States. You end up with the Islanders to open things up on the east side, uh, maybe to help there a little bit. And so you were part of something special with the Islanders for a couple of years. Talk to us about that time. Well, I didn't really open anything up. I mean, they, they had all the barn doors open with, with a dynasty that uh, Bill Torrey and Al Arbor had created. Uh, those two gentlemen from general manager to coach, uh, were together for 25 years. Bill would draft the players and Al would be responsible to develop them. And at some point, if Al couldn't, the player was traded. But they created a culture that was enormous. Al was the best coach I ever played for, was a father figure to all of us, taught us some great life lessons. His wife taught our wives great life lessons. She was an ambassador for our wives, teaching what it was like to be a wife in the NHL. It was just a great family situation for all of us. We had a young team. We had four young defensemen. Uh, we, we, you know, played uh, against Washington in the first round of a playoff series, beat them. Then we went up against the, 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 the Dragon, the Pittsburgh Penguins, who were two-time Stanley Cup champs. And they had everything from yeah. Yager to, oh, I forgot Lemieux. Yeah, Lemieux, uh, Francis. They, yeah, they it wasn't bad. Yeah, not a bad team. I think they finished the year with 16 straight wins. No shootout wins, no ties, 16 wins. And we played them in Al Arbor, just sat us in the room. We are going up against Pittsburgh, and we were all like a bunch of sheep, just, you know, bah, we don't have a chance. You know, we're booking our travel for vacations. And he just said, hey, to Pat Blatley, can you tie one shift? I guess Mario Lemieux. And of course, Flats, of course I can tie a shift. And then Ray Ferraro, yes, I can. And Claude was out all the way down the list. Great, first period's done. Now let's go to the second period. And he did it again. And they said, guys, if we can just tie a shift with Lemieux, not win it, we get to game seven in overtime, all we have to do is win one shift. Okay, seems like we can put that into a parcel and accomplish that. And sure enough, game seven, overtime, David Wolick, we won one shift. And I thought, this guy is a genius. He called the series before we even started. But uh, that was a young team that was put together after the dynasty. And we had some of the best mentors that a hockey player or an ambassador or a person on this planet could ever have in Bill and Al. They were just genuinely great people. And uh, the other part about that, too, is that another side that, that developed, I think, on your end was I think that's where you got your first, I may be wrong, and it's your first taste of being an entertainer with a show with one of your teammates, Pat Flatley. I think it was called the Heels and Flat Show. And uh, 
How did that all start? Rick, do you know any good lawyers? <laughs> yeah, oh, I do, as a matter of fact. <laughs> good, thank you. Just text me the numbers. But you know, the, the incredible thing about that is when you look at Hockey Night in Canada, the first period of Hockey Night in Canada for years was Grapes and Ronnie. And boy, you tuned in to watch that, right? It was either going to be really entertaining or it was going to be a train wreck or it was going to be something and you didn't know what it was going to be. And so here we were in Long Island and they came to us and said, you know what would be great? We'll do a Heels and Flat show. Flats is kind of the straight guy. You're kind of the, the, the witty guy. And we'll put this show together. And we thought, well, we'll give it a try. And it was actually the first intermission of the Islander games. So it tells me either we were so non-entertaining on the ice that they needed something else, or that Stan Fischler is so dreadful at his job that they had us replace him. It probably was both. And so we did this. And, and, and quite honestly, I look back on it now and I think, I, I don't know how we got away with saying some of the things we said. It carried on forever. And to this day, I get fan mail about it. I had more fan mail about the show than I did as a player. And I honestly think some of the New York fans that can be skewed at times, I don't even think they knew I was a player on the team. They thought I just did the first intermission with Pat Blatley. So, but it was, uh, it was not our finest hour. Uh, but Flats and I, we get along great. We're best friends. And so the yin and the yang work good. And, and we entertain New Yorkers. And believe me, it doesn't take much. Well, uh, you know, yeah, but that speaks so, volumes to the, to the players. And, and, you know, NHL players were so sort of reserved and quiet. It would be unusual to see players actually show they have a personality and they can be kind of funny. So I think that was – the game needs uh, more there, of that. We weren't that quiet. Well, yeah, <laughs> to the public. But so on that, on that same subject, I mean, obviously you enjoyed doing that. And, uh, you know, I, later on you ended up on Hockey Night Canada for many years. And to this day, I still wish you were there because you gave great insight into things that right now you normally don't hear. But, uh, but anyway, that probably led to you possibly getting on Hockey Night Canada, I would think, I would imagine. Well, I did. I got a chance to go on hockey night. Uh, um, I was still playing and uh, John Shannon asked me to come on. Uh, I was injured. I had severed a finger one of the years with the Islanders. Uh, thank you, Steve Thomas. I'll get back to you again. Which finger was it again? Oh, it's this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so I went on and I, I still have the tape of that very first time I, I was on. And, and Ron McLean's brilliant at what he does. And he, and he really from like, from a softball from the ladies tees was just handing me like softballs to hit out of the park. And I was so absolutely dreadful that first show that I thought to myself, there's no chance you have any chance at a career on television. And the call came later after I I'd left the Leafs and was finished playing. But you know, that maybe Ricky, you're right. Maybe that was the start. It, it had people noticing that, yeah, we can come on TV and people are going to watch because they don't know what they're getting. We could be a train wreck. And so it led to some other good stuff. But, uh, but that was the start for Flats and I. And I, I still remember we did a Bob deal of this old house and Flats was getting totally ripped off by the contractors and he didn't know. And we walked a guy through the house and he just was shaking his head at the craftsmanship that Flats was being endured to pay for in his place in Long Island. So there was some entertaining moments on the show. But hopefully um, they've all disappeared. Watch them again. So then when we were on, you get to work with me. On, uh, and yeah, that was... uh, we, we had a lot of fun doing that. I, I remember speaking to John Shannon, 
I remember the one time we were doing uh, the Marmot games as well. And he asked me, he said, would you like to do the color for the Marlins games? Well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Well, you know, I mean, I've never done color, but I'll give it a shot. So we're in Rochester, and I remember doing the first period. And then in the intermission, he comes flying into the press box and just goes crazy on me. <laughs> and you got you to gotta speak quicker. You got to get in and out quick and just go on and on and on. And I, I said, well, that's the first time I've ever done color. Can you give me a little bit of time? Maybe I can get it down. And, and but that was it. That was my last game of doing color because he said you're done. So. <laughs> well, he'll, there's a time there right after that. Uh, the Islanders. I think I don't know if this is a record or not, but within I think two days, you became an Anaheim Mighty Duck. You ended up at Tampa Bay Lightning, and you ended up with the crosstown rival of all places to go to Rangers. I don't think you even got off your coach to, to, to accept any of those. And we're even, I don't think you're even in the country, too, as I got the story, if I got the story right. Yeah, you got the story right. So when the, uh, we finished the year with the Islanders, and we had a successful year beating Pittsburgh, and we had our year-end party that, that, uh, that night to celebrate the year. And, and again, my good buddy, Pat Flatley, taking care of me, as always, uh, wrote my contract demands on a napkin and gave it to the owners. There was four owners at the time. And the owners crumpled it up and threw it at me. At that point, I knew I wasn't going to be an Islander for a whole lot longer. And then, so as a group, we went to Ireland on vacation. We thought, let's get away. We're on the west coast of Ireland. And, uh, you know, for all the kids watching today, I feel like grapes. But we didn't have cell phones back in 93. Nobody did. And on the west coast, we didn't have a hardline phone either. We were there to misbehave with a bunch of people that we were with. And if you ever go on a vacation with eight or nine guys, and their wives, you probably know that every day you wake up, there's someone you can misbehave with. So that's what we did. Anaheim picked me up in the first wave of the expansion, tried to call me, can't get a hold of me. Then they trade me to Tampa, or Tampa got to pick one player from the expansion draft. And then Neil Smith had orchestrated a trade with Phil Esposito and Tampa Bay. And so I ended up with the Rangers. And it had, it had been days that whether it was Anaheim or Tampa or the Rangers could not get a hold of me. And they thought, who is this arrogant SOB who won't call us back? And it was only at the Brazenhead pub in Dublin, one of the oldest pubs in Ireland, if not the oldest, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm right. And I could see big fat head coming through the crowd and he'd had a few libations and flats tells me, You've been traded to the Rangers. And uh, hey, you think about it. That's like going from Montreal to Boston. Islander Rangers, they hate each other. And so he actually made his mom read it in the paper. And his mom was like, there it is, Pat. He's been traded to the Rangers. And she read them the article and that was it. Uh, you know, we celebrated for a little bit and then it was back to work training camp in London, England that year with the, with the Rangers. We played the Leafs and the French's Mustard Cup Challenge, and dusted off the lease, which were again a Final Four team, and the journey began in New York with the, I was Benedict Arnold, both sides hated me. Well, no, then you end up with, back with Keenan, who you turned down already, he's a 16 year old, so how to, and then, so, tell us about that year. Well, it was, uh, it was a year that, it was, there was a lot of ups and downs. We had a great team. <laughs> We had great leadership, and I recall the very first day of uh, training camp, I said to my wife, I think we can win the cup with this team. 
And, uh, and it, it was that kind of a year. I mean, we dusted off teams by halfway through the year. Uh, the president's trophy was pretty much in our hands and that it was just a matter of delivering in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, with Mike, he pushes you to the limit. And if you never give him a limit, he just keeps pushing. And so for some of the guys, they got pushed right over the cliff. And for other guys, they put a line in the sand immediately. I'll say this. Uh, he, he pushed us to the point we did something that no other Ranger team did in 54 years. Three generations of Ranger fan. Grandfather, father, son, no championship, lots of misery. Lots of great players with the Rangers. They always had great teams. Ricky would know that. And uh, it just it never, never came to fruition until that one magical year. And uh, so we erased three generations of misery, an incredible parade, uh, not a boat parade like they have today. Wow, it'd be so exciting to get on a tugboat and go for a parade. You know, millions of people up Broadway, like the, the, the astronauts did, like the champion teams in the, with, with the Knicks and with the, the Mets and the Yankees, like all of that uh, to be there at that moment to enjoy it. Uh, starting with London, England, with the French's Mustard Cup Challenge, it was a great journey, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Now tell us. So that brings me to another thing with you're talking about the leadership. And, uh, well, Smith made some nice moves, too, bringing in guys like Steve Larmer. And got a lot of guys that played for Mike Keenan before, and Mike knew what they were capable of doing. But the leadership, Mark Messier, obviously, you know, guaranteeing that win. And he played with Wayne Gretzky as well. So, you know, two of the probably best players ever in the National Hockey League, but also known as good leaders in different ways. Uh, expand on that a little bit for us. Well, they brought players in, yes, that, um, that Mike knew, but I think it was more important to bring in players that knew Mike. Yeah, well, that's true. Because they knew what to expect when there were trials and tribulations. Uh, Mark was one of those guys that uh, everybody on the team mattered. It didn't matter if you were uh, Benny Patrizzi who picked up the towels every day in the locker room he came to the club uh, after he was injured in World War II, never saw a championship, and Mark made sure he got a Stanley Cup ring. And all Benny did was pick up the towels and just love his Rangers. He made sure everyone that, if they didn't play, felt like they were part of the team. Mm -hmm. He included the wives in everything we did. And uh, that was unique to most of the teams that you and I have played on, where it's normally it's the, the boys go for lunch and then they're barely able to make it back on the last go train when they get at night and so he made sure that they felt in, included as well and uh, you know there were just so all the pieces in play to accept the role that you were put in and not be selfish and not think I need more ice I need more time on the power play you know we brought over Craig McTavish from the Oilers he was the captain you know he was one of their best players I mean they were rebuilding but one of their best and he came to our team to play five minutes a night but guess what he took the most important face-off in the history of Rangers hockey. We brought in a Doug Lidster who had played 700 games in, in various spots in the NHL. Didn't play all year. Got put into the finals as a top defenseman. He's on the ice for the last face-off to win the Stanley Cup. Steve Larmer. I never saw him make a mistake all year. Greg Gilbert. Not a mistake. Joey Kosher, you want to fight him? Good luck. I'm checking out of that one. Didn't want anything to do with that. Yeah. Great combinations with a Zuboff playing with Kevin Lowe, Zuby, one of the most skilled guys. Then you had Brian Leach, 
who was playing with Jeff Bukabu. You know, Jeff knew his role. He's going to hit you with a piece of two-by-four right across the top of the head. You want to go anywhere near the net, you're paying the price, and then get the puck to Leachy and then watch him do his magic. So all of the pieces were in play. Mateau with two double OT goals. Ryan Noonan doing what he had to do, a checking line doing what they had to do. Mm-hmm. And even our coaching staff, like Colin Campbell had his role. Uh, Dick Todd, wonderful guy from Peterborough. Dickie was great at keeping the group loose. And so we were a complete team, uh, arguably the best team that I've ever played on. And it showed because at the end of the year, we lifted that 35-pound trophy over our heads and ended 30, 54 years of absolute misery. And last time they had won the cup, they burnt the mortgage to the Stanley Cup in Toronto, in, Ma- in Maple Leaf Gardens. They had paid off the mortgage. And at that time, the hockey god said, you will never win another one because it's sacrilegious to do what you did to the cup. And I was starting to believe it as we went down the last strokes in June of 1994. Well, speaking of handling the cup, you guys, now that must have been quite a party because this is New York. This isn't some small city that wins a cup and has, you know, 100,000 people shopping. I mean, this is New York City. So everything is over the top. So some of the parties must have been pretty wild. And I, I, I got to add this one, Heels. 1995, they started giving players a cup for the day. Now, is that a coincidence because of what you guys did or anything you guys were doing with the cup that had them do that? Or because it all of a sudden, coincidentally, just started the next year? Yeah, you know, I wish, you know, if we, if we watched that parade in New Jersey when they went around the parking lot at Burn Arena, that would have been so exciting. Uh, very exciting. Go around the parking lot, my gosh. Must have been 20,000 fans or 15,000 um, you can sense the cynicism. Yeah, you know, the, everything was done and overdone in New York. The parade was overdone. You know, the team provided limos for players. No one was to drive. Uh, the, the party, the Russians had it at Brighton Beach, which was something like I've never seen in my life before. Uh, and we had the cup that summer, and everyone got to take it to where they wanted to take it to. One of the players who I, I won't name, uh, but, you know, when you lift the cup, you tend to lift it by the top. Yeah. You're really not supposed to, you know, and the top came off. Okay, you've got a bunch of people coming over, and the cup is in two pieces. So you, you're just going to hand them here. You're just take a drink out of the glass, okay? No, two pieces. Gorilla, so we decided gorilla, to glue, gorilla glue. <laughs> no, they, they, they actually used solder, Ricky. They went one step further, except it was uh, lead solder. So for anyone that doesn't know, the cup is silver not lead. So they covered up about 15 names. <clears throat> so it didn't look good on us. And, uh, and you know, each of us had a day and we, we enjoyed it fully. Uh, some of the guys had won multiple cups, so maybe it wasn't that big. I had it in Pickering. I took it to the Legion. I took it to the hospital. I took it to Sick Kids Hospital. And we, we had a big shindig uh, in my area. And people still remember it. But uh, after that year, the NHL said, okay, I'm watching this Glenn Healy and Nick Kiprio serve drinks at MTV off the bottom of the cup. Probably not a good thing. I'm watching Nick Kiprios and Glenn Healy take it to McSorley's. And within three and a half minutes, two guys who really didn't play lost the cup and it disappeared in New York. To the point we had to get hundreds of police officers to find it. So that next year, that's the year they had security go with the cup everywhere it went for every party. So for Phil Pritchard and Mr. North, those guys, I got you a job for 26 straight years, and you've been to every party. So at some point, you can thank me in your acceptance speeches at the Hall of Fame. But after that, you get the cup, 
you've got security. And it was the New York Rangers that wrecked it for everybody. So way to go, team. And I'll take that any day. <laughs> so I, I, it's still a great tradition. And, and, and obviously, the player, it's great for the players that they do get to take the cup to wherever they want. Uh, most of them, their hometowns and their old rinks where they used to grow up playing. Even though the security's there, they still get the cup. And uh, I still think it's a fantastic day for the players. You know, Ricky, the other thing, too, is, uh, you know, in this role, one thing I pressed on the league was there are a whole bunch of players that never did get the cup for a day. You know, the Flyers, when mm -hmm. they won the cup, they didn't get the cup for a day. So in the past number of years, we have got the cup for a day for a bunch of the players that are still with us that didn't have a chance. That wasn't the tradition back then. And so they've had a chance with the Stanley Cup for a day. So we've even taken it back. And, you know, for those that don't know, the minute... The I, I've never had it for a day, Heels. But, um, there's this little thing called winning it. Oh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Thing. <laughs> but it's the 99 days of the Cup. And for 99 days, each of the players gets, or general managers or coaches, they, they get that Cup. And it's, it is special. It really is. They, yeah. they engrave your last name on it. And it, it really is important because you're really, it's your family that sacrifices. And so to see your last name means your sister, your brother, your family sacrifice financially. If you have a chance to play this great sport, even though you didn't touch the puck your first year with the Holy Redeemer Flyers, uh, the, you still you still finish strong. Well, you um you finished there in New York. I mean, I guess now you come home to Toronto, uh, but you had some probably probably had some options coming off a winning team or when you're finished in New York, actually coming home. You played for some coaches over the years Keenan we've touched on Robbie Fatork with the Cardian still like to know what all that was about but then you come and play for your Al Arby you touched on you come to Toronto your hometown you got Pat Quinn maybe walk us through all of that well you know the thing about Al and the, the thing about Pat is they they had a real presence you know when they walked in a room you were paying attention when they walked in any room they walked into a boardroom when they walked into a, a restaurant you know, very few coaches have that presence. Very few players have that presence. You know, if you ever, you ever follow Bobby Orr into a room, the room stops breathing. Mm -hmm. You know, you ever follow Wayne in, Mark Messier in. When you watch what, uh, what Jean Beliveau did when he walked into a room, it, it stopped. Even if you were NHL players that had played 21 years, you stopped because it, there was a presence in the room. And so Pat Quinn had that presence. He wasn't necessarily the best X and O's guy to, here's the breakout, here's what we're going to do. But I tell you, from a motivational standpoint, uh, mm -hmm. he would give some of the most passionate speeches and you would leave there believing that you could win every game. I, I remember well, we had one uh, pregame speech where Pat passionately sat in the middle of the room and talked about the British box plus one. And he went through, it's a wartime strategy and he talked about it and he was passionate and you know, in that big Irish booming action with the big hands and smashing his hand down on the chair. And, you know, the British, it worked for the British. It's a British box bus. That's what we're going to do to beat this team. And he left the room. And then I had all five Russians come up to me and go, Glenny, what is the British box plus one? What's he talking about? And it was, you know, okay, we'll have to teach you that one. But he really, uh, he had that, that ability to really get your attention, to motivate you. He's a wonderful man. Uh, he did things like Al. He was a player's coach. There were things that happened off the ice that no one has read about, and nor will they ever read about. 
because it's not leaving the locker room with the players. And Pat could have had it leave the locker room with management and it stayed within the locker room. And he treated that player like he was a player on that team. Not he was the coach and had your fate in his hands and could trade you at any moment because he was the GM as well. Uh, but he treated you like a player should be treated with dignity, respect. And we really respected that. And they went both ways. So now, boy, boy, does that does that ever sound nice? Yeah, <laughs> this <laughs> this is new. If only, if only, if only I had that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So women can vote in this U.S. election? Really? <laughs> yes, Ricky. There, there are people that really have a soul. He was one of them. Yeah, you, you get the fortune of playing for two of them. Um, now, a couple of the guys you play with, I know you, Pat, you, you and Ty used to always have this thing going back and forth with you other the time. I mean, maybe give the listeners a couple of the, the stories between you two guys. Like, Because uh, I know he thought of himself as a real prankster, and I think he still does. So just kind of – Yeah, you, you, guys you, would, you, would, you would never cross Ty. Uh, he would go to all ends of the earth to get you back. There's no amount of money – there's no distance you can travel. There, there's no hiding spot for you. He was uh, like he was on the ice. He was uh, a, a, as big a bulldog prankster as you could ever get. He was one of the most loyal teammates that I've ever met. He would be absolutely, he would have your back in every situation, anytime, any place. And it's, it's good to know that. I, I recall one game, there was a player in New Jersey I was standing talking to. I wasn't playing and uh, I just wished him a a Merry Christmas, you know, a beautiful year. Here we go. And hope your family's doing good. Merry Christmas. Ty at that point thought he was yapping at the bench, jumped over and knocked him out. And the game ended and I said to Ty, Ty, he wished us a Merry Christmas. Well, I don't care. He shouldn't talk to you on the bench anyways. Okay, so there we go. Thanks for that. But uh, yeah, Ty and I, we, we have a great relationship to this day. Uh, you know, he is uh, he's as loyal as you're ever going to get. But in the dressing room, uh, it was easy, uh, you know, grabbing those strings and playing with Pinocchio and just working them every day in front of the group. Uh, he was falling for it all. Yeah. Fishing in a barrel. But his education or something one time, wasn't he giving you guys something about his, uh, and I'm a Notre Dame guy, so he was talking about Notre Dame and you called him on that one? Yeah, we had a couple instances. That was one where he had a first scholarship, uh, not only in football, but in hockey to Notre Dame, uh, which they didn't even have a hockey program at the time. So maybe he was starting the program. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but when I confronted him uh, about that in front of the team, so if anybody has video evidence and you had a phone back then, and there's these two naked guys running through Boston Garden. It's him chasing me to beat the snot out of me. Uh, thank goodness I was a quicker runner. And thank goodness for no cell phones. And there's no naked pictures of me, either Ty or myself, running through the bowels of the gardens. He did catch me eventually. And I've not been the same since. So if I forget who I'm on the show with, please remind me. <laughs> well, after the Toronto, yeah, Toronto kind of ended... Uh, they bought you out, I assume, at the end, as, as, as it goes. You ended up in the broadcasting. But that was kind of a funny story, too, how you, you spent your last days in Maple Leaf. Yeah, you know, I was, uh, I was actually re-signed to a two-year deal. I was 40, and uh, I, it was rather strange that I would be re-signed. Uh, I thought I was done at 32, but I just wasn't going to tell anybody. 
Rick and I are good at that. We're really good at that. And, uh, and so, you know, there was a, a, a guy in Sweden who played net and he wouldn't come over unless I wasn't there. So they basically said, well, get rid of Glenn, buy him out. And at that point, uh, my career was over. I had some opportunities, but I wasn't going anywhere. It was time to invest in my family. And uh, hockey night called. It hit the airwaves that day. You know, typically for any NHL player, if it's a June 30th and a Saturday and a courier shows up at your house, you're not <laughs> getting bought out. You're getting bought out. So <laughs> bought out and uh, hockey night called. And I said, I will give it a try. I'll try this thing called broadcasting. I did my first game with Don Whitman. Uh, it was incredible legend in, the, in, in everything from track and field to football to you name it. You could do anything. And uh, uh, I recall the very first whistle. We put up the lines, like in, back in the day, right? You have all, here you go, here's all 12 forwards and all six defense. And then within three nanoseconds, it's off. So I started, here we go, the Edmonton Oilers lines. And uh, unless you're a speed reader, you didn't see any of those names. And it was a waste of time. But stay tuned, everybody, because we're going to waste more of your time in the next whistle. And uh, the exec producer at the time called me and said, you can't say that. You can't say that. I'm like, well, I did say that. So we can't take it back now. Right? Two faces out of the tube. But that was my start. And, uh, and I, you know, it went from there. And I worked with such great people. You, you can't go wrong. If you've got Bob Cole and you've got, you know, Don Whitman and, and you've got Jim Houston, how can you fail at that job? They're such pros. So that was a journey that I went on for an enjoyable part of time and, uh, and did get to see some of the best championship wins and a, a gold medal in Sochi for my snowball. Well, the, between the benches, I think you were the first to do that, were you not? And uh, that was a whole new uh, perspective and outlook for fans to get a real view. And especially coming from you, I mean, I, I mean, it must have been something different for you because you were usually looking from either the end of the bench or from behind in the goal crease. So that yeah, must yeah. have been a whole Well, before you, before you get started, Glenn, I noticed that a lot of the color guys or guys between periods are goaltenders. And I always, I've always wondered why are most of these guys goaltenders and then I thought to myself, I said, okay, they're pretty good at it because they look at, they see the whole ice yeah. every game they play. They see the entire ice. They see what's happening at the other end. They see what's, what's happening when they're coming out of the other end. So they're probably better at describing these things than a forward would be. Well, you could do, look at it two ways. We're either unemployable in any other line of work and so that's what we have to do. <laughs> or you're right, uh, Ricky, you know what? We would, I'd analyze curves on sticks. If you changed your tape from black to white, I would say he's struggling. And probably on a two-on-one, you're going to shoot because you want to score. And uh, we would have all. Well, there was no doubt I was shooting on a two-on-one. Anyway, yeah, that's but right. Anyway. But you would have, you would break down power plays, penalty kills. Uh, you know, a, a guy like Ty might worry about two players on the other team. Is he a lefty or is he a righty? We would worry about everybody. We worry about your own team. So very analytical in, in, in what we did. And so maybe that's it. Um, I don't really have an answer for it because, you know, in some ways that has been a position that's been filled. And Mike, I think you're right. Like we were the first to, uh, to be between the benches. Pierre Maguire would would offer a different opinion, uh, but uh, now now we'll do a Trump. Of course, he would. It, it was in fact during a lockout at John Shannon, 
and Mark Askin, we got together and said, you know, why don't we show the game and bring the fans to the ice? The one thing about being way up in the booth, it's so easy to watch the game. And you look at all the space on the ice and you think, how did that player not make that pass? Like, how did that, you know, player make a giveaway when it was clear he had people open? Well, from 100 feet away, it's really easy. From ice level, you sense fear. You sense panic. You see that things happen at a razor clip. Like, players are fast. Time and space disappears quickly. And so we put a location between the benches and tried it. I remember one of the first NHL games I did, we decided to bring a radar gun down between the benches. Mm -hmm. And you know, we'd see how fast a player could shoot a puck from the point. And I can recall Sidney Crosby looking at me during the game going, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, it was all new. We were trying something new. And, uh, and I think it really worked because, again, what you want is you want to be as close to the, the, a seat as you possibly can to the field of action, and that provided that. And so uh, we, we did it for many years, and now it is a staple of every rink. Every new rink that's built has a broadcast location. The Olympics, uh, we, again, were between the benches in the Olympics and uh, in Sochi, which was uh, a, an incredible experience, one that I'll never forget. Lots of incredible stories there. Uh, but, uh, but that became a staple. And now pretty much every team, every national broadcast is a spot where we go. And that was the vision of Mark Askin and John Shannon during a lockout to give it a try to see if the fans can get closer to the game. And it worked. And you, you talked about analytics. And, you know, obviously you look now, they're talking about how fast that guy went from the blue line to the, fall, the far blue line and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so I want to bring you in on something that happened last night. I don't know if you watched the Dodgers game against Tampa Bay, Major League Baseball. Here's a pitcher going along. He's mowing the Dodgers down left and right. And then he's only got one hit against them. And then the leadoff guy gets on and they yank him. More than likely because of analytics. So should we take another look at analytics and say, do, uh, do they all apply or is it only certain situations? To me, the game breaks down Pretty simple. This is how it breaks down for me. If, if you were to take two people when we were kids in a, a hotel uh, hallway, okay? And you got your little mini sticks, and you got a ball of tape or a sock, and we throw it down, who wants that more? There's the analytics that I want to pay attention to. I want that more than you want it, so I don't care what the numbers say, I'm going to get it. And that, to me, that's all over the ice. Battles in the corner, battles in front of the net, battles at the blue line. Mm -hmm. Who wants it more? The intangible side of the ledger cannot be measured by an analytic. It cannot be the only and paramount thing that you look at when you decide to pull a pitcher. And if I was the pitcher, I would have told the manager, get the hell back into the dugout. I ain't leaving. And I would have done a Ron Hextall, sat in the crease, crossed my arms. I'm not leaving. Okay. And, uh, and so analytics has a part in the game. You want to yeah. clearly look at it. Uh, but the game breaks down to quite simply, I want that puck more than you, and I'm going to get it. And that space in front of the slot that you wanted more than the people that defended you, that's why you scored 50 goals. Not that they didn't want to defend you. 
you want it to be there more and you pay the price for it. So I break it down that way. And I think that's the simplest form, but you know, in sport, everyone's looking for, you know, so we have a sleep coach, we have a practice coach. We've checked their heart rates and it's time to end practice. We would play and end practice when you were near dead. If you lost three in a row, you didn't dare lose four because the next practice you would be dead. They'd skate you that hard. So there, there's a fine line. And I think the ones that try to be the smartest in the group crossover. I think that's, uh, that, that, that's well said. I think that uh, that speaks volumes. And especially, think, as I said this script before, I hope people were watching all the analytical junkies, what happened the other night with the Dodgers and pay attention very closely when you're thinking further how the games are all supposed to be played. Well, Hills, we've taken up a lot of your time here. We can't thank you enough for joining us. I just want to leave you with one thought here. I mean, I keep looking at you and I've known you for a number of years, but you know, you do bear a striking resemblance at some point. I'm sure you've been told you look like Robin Williams, especially playing in LA at some point. Like, ever, I, anybody ever confronted you on that? And you could probably do that golf joke that he does <laughs> very, very well. <laughs> but we, were, uh, we were on my honeymoon in Bermuda. And, uh, you know, I thought, time to get away. You know, um, getting out of New York, season's over. We got married. And I can sense this guy in Bermuda from New York looking at me in the buffet line, staring at me. And he comes to me and says, I love you, man. I watch you all the time. And he had his thick New York accent, you know. You're on TV all the time, and I can't, I can't get enough of you. you. I love you, man. Well, can I get an autograph? I'm like, sure, yeah, no problem. So he comes over. I said, what's your name? So-and-so. Glenn Healy gave it to him. He goes, you're not Robin Williams. <laughs> and I never fucking said I was. Okay? <laughs> and again, he walked away. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been said a couple times, but... Uh, but uh, uh, no, not quite as funny as Robin. He was a lot better looking, but I'll take the I'll take the compliment. So I've had a really great time with you guys as well. Could yeah. you do the spiel on the golf that he did though, as good as him? I bet you could with your accent. Uh, I have to give up my day job. I don't know if I do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I mean, Hills, we want to thank you again for joining us. I keep up the great work with the uh, alumni and. As I said to Squid, your Lord, your you're his Lord and Master, so he better be nice to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, great stuff, great guys. Job. You know what? Uh, the one job. thing we don't do on TV enough is tell stories. We don't, and uh, to get players on to tell stories that are human in in a lot of sense, and that would uh, bring a smile, a tear, a laugh to people's face. Yeah, uh, you're doing a great job. So just keep it up, keep it up. Pressure's on. I'll be watching. <laughs> Thanks, All right, Hills. Thank you. Thanks. All right, Squidwell. Another good one. Another good one in the books. Can't thank Heels enough, but what a guy. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'm not part of the NHL Alumni Association, but if I was, I'd feel real secure with him at the top running the show. Well, I, I think we all do, Mike. And, uh, you know, he's not just a great leader uh, with the alumni, but he is funny as hell. And every time you get a chance to go in and visit with them, well, not now, what we're going through now, but there's times where I would just drop in the office, sit down, and, and, and literally he would just cheer you up uh, sitting there with him for half an hour. Yeah, and he's just, he's just, just such a good guy too, but he, but he gets it. Yeah, about the absolutely. Game. He's about expanding the game. He's about bringing awareness to the game. 
and he's about looking after players and that's what it's all about and it's it's you know they always talk about family which is an overused word but he really does try to make once you're part once you join that fraternity you're part of it for life yeah what i loved most about it was how he talked about if you played one game in the nhl or you played a thousand you're treated the same yeah and you're you're going to get the same benefits as the other guy And, and i you know, there's not there's not that many executive directors of anything that would think that way. Well, and I think the one thing I would say, you know, as a fan looking at this, is that the, I've been privy to know a lot of NHL guys and what a little bit of the going on of the league. But not every guy's a millionaire. Not every guy's set for life of every contract he makes. Uh, you'd be people, I think, on the average, would know that most players don't make the kind of money that people are thinking. And remember, while you are playing a professional sport. They are giving up opportunities in life elsewhere to get themselves advanced in careers. So there's a sacrifice to be made from that standpoint, even though it's a very nice lifestyle. We're not, you know, saying that they deserve a lot of pity, but support your NHL alumni when you can, folks, because they do a lot of fantastic work. They work with players. They work with a lot of foundations and charities. And I said before when I was speaking to when Glenn was on, that they helped us many, many, many times for the uh, the, the events that Deb and I run on fundraising, the NHL Player Association stepped right up every time the alumni to help us and uh, never, never, ever question it. And we just couldn't thank them enough. And we couldn't do half the things we did without them. And guys even like Squid, we still don't even question and come and help. So there's my pitch for the day. Folks, support your NHL alumni, please. Squid, you're supposed to say thanks, Mike. Well, no, thank you, Mike. And I, you know what? But, but you said that, you know, at least me anyway, and I think most of the players who's played in the National Hockey League, it's automatic. When someone asks you to come and do something yeah. because you're helping somebody, no, they, most of the players, they, 99.9% of the players wouldn't even think twice about it. And that's just, you know, that's just the way we were brought up and yep. uh, how we were groomed through the years. And, you know, we, we couldn't have a better leader of our, our alumni association than the guy that we just had on who said all of those things. Yep. And he does, and he backs it to the T. Yeah. So, anyway, we want to uh, thank, uh, thank Heels for coming on and joining us today. Uh, another terrific show for us uh, and the guests we have. Uh, we're looking forward to joining you guys again next week. So, again, we want to thank our friends at the Hockey News. Again, your source for anything pertains to the game of hockey. Anywhere in the world, a story breaks. The Hockey News is there to cover it. Established in 1947. To get your subscription to the Hockey News with over 2 million followers, you go to thn.com slash deal for your best value on a subscription to the Hockey News. Guys, listen to us on Squid and the Ultimate Leap Man. Uh, pick up Rick on Instagram, Rick5. He's on Twitter as Rick5. Ultimate Leap Fan for me on uh, my webpage or as on Twitter or on uh, Instagram or Facebook, you can follow me anywhere. Send us any of your questions at any time. Guys, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you guys next week.